Our sermon today is taken from Acts 5, verses 17 to 33. Here is the word of God. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all of the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you had put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Thus says the Lord. Father in heaven, we are grateful, Lord, for you, a God whose mercy is new every morning. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are hopeless and lost without your guidance and your word. Father, as we enter uh, into the study of your word this morning, I pray that you can send your Holy Spirit, that we may be given ears to hear, that we may know your faithfulness to us, and that we may come to you and worship you reverently, and be given new energy to um, obey you all the more consistently and faithfully. Bless your servant, Lord, as he speaks. May you take as much as me out of it and put as much as you in the hearts of your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, after 19 excruciating months, I thought this day would never come, but officially it's over, right? This is the last pre-recorded service by Covenant City Church, hopefully forever. Because as most of you probably know, by now, by next week, we'll begin live streaming our services on Sundays in our beautiful new space. And not long after that, TCC will finally meet again for public worship in person. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe. Now, it goes without saying that this seemingly endless COVID season was tough for everybody. And this might surprise some of you, but the church was not short on the anxiety and frustration that so many have experienced in this season. Now, there are certainly other churches and Christians that have had a rougher experience than we had. There has been some spectacular failures of very prominent church figures 
that were exposed, which certainly wounded a lot of people. And many churches lost people either due to uh, falling out or due to health issues. And the church didn't make it out of this season in one piece. Now, thank God this didn't happen to us, but it wasn't smooth sailing for us either. It was really hard for us to see our members struggling physically, mentally, spiritually, and feeling severely limited ourselves and how we can serve you. On top of the anxiety of getting seriously ill and the economy just crashing around us. So it would have been very easy for us to be discouraged, mainly because it is very hard to know if we've made progress in our ministry. Now we could take attendance in our online programs and look at our YouTube views from time to time. But as excited as we are for online community groups and as helpful as this is, nothing beats the assembly of God's people. And it remains that there are many people we have made vows to as a church to serve that we're not simply able to reach and bless just under the circumstances. But through your faithfulness, our members, and especially our awesome ministry leaders and volunteers, the Lord has encouraged us to keep going. So know, friends, that we do not cease thanking God for you, for you have truly refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, it seems fitting, even predestined, you might say, that the Holy Spirit happened to ordain that today we should be studying a passage that talks about a time when the church seemed like it was limited by her external circumstances similar to where we were in our last recorded service. Because today we'll be continuing our series on the book of Acts and we'll be studying another account of when the authorities tried to mess with the apostles because they didn't like what they were saying. This is the third time that this has happened and it won't be the last time. But by now we should see a pattern. That the church and the apostles experienced some crazy things that authenticate the gospel they're preaching. This made pe more people come to Christ, yet this only made the establishment feel more threatened. So they tried harder to suppress this movement, and our passage tells us of the account of their most violent effort yet. And in this passage, we learn that when the church is facing adversity, as they did in the first century, and to a lesser extent like we have recently, at least three things will prove themselves to be true. Our three points. One, the cross of Christ offends sinful man. Two, but the gospel cannot be stopped by man. And three, so we must obey God rather than men. Let me repeat that for you. One, the cross of Christ offends sinful men. Two, but the gospel cannot be stopped by men. And three, so we must obey God rather than men. May the Lord give us ears to hear today as we learn from his word today. Point one, the message of the cross offends sinful men. So we learn from verse 17 and 18 that after seeing the popularity of the apostles and hearing about the message that was preached to them, the high priest and his squad was filled with jealousy so that they tried to stop them by putting them in prison. And at the very end of the text in verse 33, we told that this jealousy eventually flourished or festered and turned into anger such that they wanted to even kill the apostles. Right? So what's up with all this hate? Why would they be willing to commit murder over disagreement about who Jesus was, right? Because to us modern readers, this might seem just like an academic theological disagreement. Well, the clues in our text point to at least two big reasons why the gospel message was such an offense to them, right? First, they hated the apostles because the gospel undermined their worldview. Now, where do we see that? 
If you look at verse 17 again, Luke very intentionally names the particular group that came after the apostles this time. They were the Sadducees, right, who were running the show at the temple at this time. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel narratives, you would know that what the Bible particularly highlights about the Sadducees, what's distinctive about them, was that they didn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, in Acts 23, Paul adds that they didn't believe in angels or spirits either. And even this renowned historian of the Roman era, Flavius Josephus, said that they didn't even believe in the afterlife, nor penalties, nor rewards after death. So the Sadducees basically didn't believe in anything supernatural outside of God himself. And they were also synonymous with the upper echelons of society. We are told that the high priest himself came from this party. So they were the ones calling the shots in the most important Jewish institutions, like the temple. Hence, they were seen as a group of great social, political, and religious significance. But here comes this Jesus of Nazareth guy, some uneducated low-class carpenter from Nazareth with his motley crew of nobodies and outcasts, seeing that he is actually the Messiah King of Israel. Even more, in fact, that he is the incarnate of God, Yahweh, the God of Israel himself. And that his kingdom is actually not a political, physical entity as everyone else expected. Rather, it is a heavenly kingdom. And the ones who are part of his kingdom are not the religious people in powerful places like the Sadducees were, but it was the poor in spirit and the lonely at heart. So hearing this, the Sadducees conspired to kill Jesus by handing him over to the Romans to be crucified, thinking that this would be the end of that problem. But now, people around him have seen that after he was supposedly killed, that he was actually raised from the dead and people have seen him around. And in fact, his unlearned disciples were suddenly speaking boldly from the scriptures while performing miracles. You see, friends, for the Sadducees, the reality of who Jesus was not only made no sense to them intellectually, but it made the very basis upon which they derived their significance, security, and value, that upon which they established their identity, begin to crumble. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, it meant that they weren't on top of anymore. They weren't as important as they thought they were. They didn't have it all figured out. And they can't go on teaching the same things or living the same way. And basically, they have to admit that they were wrong and start all over. And you can imagine, friends, that this is an offensive, uncomfortable, and downright frightening thought. And this offensive confrontation of the gospel happens to us all. Not only in the moment when you're converted, but actually constantly as the Holy Spirit reveals to us God's holiness and exposes our sinfulness. Because the more we know about God, the more we will see areas in our lives that are inconsistent with the reality of Christ and the holiness of God, which we confess to believe. So we might not be able to work the same jobs or in the same way. We might not be able to behave and enjoy relationships in the same way, do activities that we once enjoyed, talk and joke as we once did, do a bunch of other things that may seem so normal and comfortable for us. Because these things might ultimately conflict with the reality of Christ that the Holy Spirit has undeniably impressed upon us. And if we don't truly and deeply believe that Jesus is who the Bible says He is, we will respond like the Sadducees, will fight tooth and nail to justify ourselves and silence the truth of the gospel that so offends us. 
will become defensive about our decisions and lifestyles and we'll begin to surround ourselves exclusively with groups of people or information that agree with us. While rejecting the gospel as foolishness or attempting to modify it or to do some gymnastics that makes it such that it allows us to live just as we are. In other words, we become far more concerned in being right rather than getting it right. And psychologists, friends, have actually studied this. They found that when we come across information which causes a cognitive dissonance, right, this uneasiness from this realization that how we've been thinking or living is inconsistent with this new information. If we have high resistance to change towards something, right, say we really identify ourselves with uh, this belief, or if the pain and loss of change is greater than we're willing to bear, or if we have great satisfaction from this belief or lifestyle, one of the most common things we do is called selective exposure, whereby we only listen and associate ourselves with people and media sources that agree with us, while dismissing those who challenge our worldview. So we try to silence or tune out the criticism because we can't handle the dissonance. And this defensive maneuvering instincts are even more strongly and intensely triggered by the gospel because not only does the gospel tell us that we're wrong, but also that we're guilty. There's a second reason why the Sadducees were deeply offended by the apostles. Not only was their worldview undermined by the gospel, but the gospel convicted them as guilty sinners. Look at verse 28. The Sadducees not only had a problem that they were teaching something they didn't agree with, but they felt like they were bringing Jesus' blood upon their hands. And Peter doubles down on this, actually, in verse 30, when he says, Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, indeed, right, you can say that the Sadducees were definitely more directly involved in Jesus' death than any of us were. This was, after all, the same high priest that and party that handed Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. But if we read and look at Peter's previous sermons in the book of Acts, he doesn't only indict the Sadducees and the establishment, but he indicts the men of Israel, all of the Jews who were supposedly God's people who rejected him as Lord. See, Jesus' crucifixion is not only the fault of the Romans or the religious establishment, but it is due to the collective guilt and rebellion of the Jews, which in itself is representative of the rebellion of all humanity towards its creator. The net result of the insistence of every human from Adam to today to reject God's rule and to do what is right in our own eyes. Friends, in a way, we are all guilty of Jesus' death. Our selfishness and pride and self-interest is the reason why he needed to die in the first place. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross, yours and mine. We must reckon with this hard reality and accept this guilt if we truly believe in the gospel. Now, being wrong and being guilty are two of the last things that anyone wants to be. But this feeling may not necessarily be a bad thing because all it does is point out to us that something has to change. So it could really be an opportunity for growth. And if you truly believe in the gospel, you would welcome this change. Because if the gospel is true, what could be offensive to us in the gospel is not an attack on our intellect and character, but it is a diagnosis from the great physician 
on the fallenness of our condition. And the good news is this diagnosis comes with a remedy and a cure. And God's prerogative right now is to dispense this cure to all. And neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation can stop that from happening. Which is point two. The gospel cannot be stopped by man. So let's jump back to the narrative and look at what God does in response to the Sadducees' attempt to suppress the gospel. The Sadducees put them in prison, but in verse 19, the angel of the Lord simply opened the door and brought them out. Then he commissioned them again to preach the gospel, which the Sadducees clearly weren't happy about. But then, by the Holy Spirit, so many people were compelled by the gospel that in verse 26, that even the captain of the temple, the head of the temple guard, were afraid of harming the apostles, that they didn't bring him in, bring him in by force. Because previously, in verse 13, we know that not everyone dared to join them. These people still held them in high esteem. And in uh, chapter 4, verse 21, it even says that everyone was praising God for all they're doing. So through these miraculous works, God saved the apostles from harm, preserved them at that point, and personally made sure that the preaching of the gospel will continue. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying if we're good Christians or if we do ministry and try to preach the gospel, God will miraculously save us from all of our earthly problems and prevent physical harm from ever happening to us. In just a couple of chapters, we'll see the story of the first martyr. And in fact, except for John, every single one of the apostles end up giving their lives for the gospel. And in fact, we can safely say that in the narrative of Acts, Miraculous divine intervention like this is not the normal expectation. Yet what this narrative does teach us is that in the face of whatever opposition, God will vindicate his power and open the doors for the gospel to be preached by those whom he has called to preach it. And I feel like I mentioned this a lot in my sermon lately, which is maybe appropriate because we're studying the book of Acts, but if we simply look at the history of Christianity and the fact that God has preserved his people has been proven historically as objectively true. From when the Romans crucified the Messiah himself to the Roman suppression of Christianity in the age of the apostles where Christians were imprisoned and executed publicly to the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church who banned regular people from reading the scriptures prior to the Reformation. The communist China who imprisoned God's ministers and forced God's people to worship into hiding today. To the churches being bombed in Surabaya and Makassar last year and the past few years. To the COVID-19 pandemic which has made it impossible for God's people worldwide to worship together and star God's people of fellowship. I could go on, but the point is clear. There has been no shortage of attempts to stop the progress of the gospel, but it has never worked. Instead, the Church of Jesus Christ persevered and has grown to be the largest and most diverse, ethnically diverse, worshiping community in the world. And our holy text, the Bible, is the most accessible and most read piece of literature in human history. Amazing, isn't it? And why is it that God preserved the Church through the ages? Well, one way to put it is because of what the angel of the Lord said about the Word that is entrusted to the apostles in verse 20. He says that they are to preach the words of this life. 
Now, it's quite subtle, but what this is doesn't refer to the life we have right now on earth. But what this is, is the eschatological life that the apostles and the church were in possession of. It is the eternal life that is given to us by the author of life that we are enjoying right now. You see, friends, why God is so interested in the advancement of the gospel is because he wants us to have that which is truly life. Paul said it quite clearly in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our sins. Not only sick, not only struggling, but spiritually dead and unresponsive. Completely separated and alienated with God from God, who is the source of life himself. You see, God created humans as his images to be in fellowship with him, to know him, to walk with him. But in our sin, we were completely cut off from him, helpless and completely dominated by the world, enslaved to our sinful passions and desires and in rebellion against God, which will doom us to judgment and lead to our destruction. And in fact, you know, what is actually has been the greatest roadblock, the progress of the gospel in history? It's not these big institutions and oppressive governments. It's not an opposing religious or philosophical view. It's not secularism or materialism. But the greatest hindrance, the advancement of the gospel, is the sin of the human heart. The unbelieving heart, which has offended, which is offended by the gospel and wants to silence it in the first place. This is why the Sadducees rejected the gospel instead of seeing it as good news. And don't think, friends, that this unbelief only exists with the faithless reprobates out there, but it exists in every human heart. It is the part of us that makes us more afraid of the earthly cause of obedience instead of long for the heavenly glory that Christ has promised us and is to come. It is the part of us that is unwilling to let go of pet sins that we enjoy and embrace a lasting heavenly joy. And it's this part in all of us that makes us hesitate in returning to God and trusting Him, but so enthusiastically run to satisfy sin. And only, the only way we can overcome this pull of unbelief in our hearts is to participate in this eternal life, this new eternal life that God offers to us through Christ. Because what does John 17, 3 says is eternal life? He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, only through knowing God through Christ will we be made spiritually alive. Only then will we be able to stop taking offense at the gospel, but be actually empowered by it unto obedience. Just point three. So we must obey God rather than men. Then after, right, they found the apostles, the Sadducees did, teaching in the temple. The Sadducees were really upset. And they brought the apostles in for questioning. Now draw your attention to how the apostles responded to the Sadducees uh, when they again tried to stop them from reaching the gospel in verse 29-32. They start telling us that the, the only conclusion they can make at this point, that we must obey God rather than men. After sitting under the teaching of Christ throughout his ministry, after witnessing him getting crucified and then being raised from the grave, this is the only place, only position they can take. And friends, this took immense 
boldness and courage. I would imagine at this point they were ready to experience the same fate as their Lord at the hands of the same men. So how is it they were so convinced, so planted in this position of obeying God over men that they would be willing to risk death to do so? The apostles here point out three things about the person of Jesus Christ to justify their position. And it is these three things too that we must have deeply internalized about our Lord in order to participate in the eternal life we have in Him. Okay, so first, in verse 31, God raised Him from the grave, it says, and exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior. Now, the image of being exalted at the right hand of God communicates that Jesus has advanced to the ultimate position of prominence. He is the one who has the highest favor with God and shares in his authority. God's right-hand man, if you will. And that word, leader, is translated from the Greek, archegos. And previously, in chapter 3, verse 15, it's translated as author in author of life. So the sense here is that Jesus is the one who goes before the founder of this new creation whereby he is supreme and he reigns the preeminent ruler and originator of this new humanity to which we belong, the father of our heavenly nation. And then coupled with that is the idea that Jesus is also Savior. Hearkening to the idea that the hope which was foretold in the Old Testament is true, that God will rise up a king to rescue his people from judgment and subdue his enemies. The one to whom it is foretold that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, the Messiah will bring God's kingdom here on earth. But unlike what the Sadducees or any other Jews at that time would have expected, this king did not ascend to the throne through politics or the violence of war to impose his will upon his people. Nor did he rescue his people by defeating some human kingdom. But Jesus was a king who lived sacrificially to serve others unto death. And his enthronement was in fact when he was nailed on the cross on our behalf. Jesus rescued us by giving us repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Which is the second thing that the apostles point out as to why they could not comply. You see, friends, the King of Kings didn't come to earth to become a tyrant, not to bully us into submission like the authorities of the world often try to do, like the Sadducees are trying to do here with the apostles. But our Lord came to liberate us from our greatest enemy, the sin which makes us spiritually dead and alienated from the author of life. The sin which causes unbelief, that unbelief which rejects the life that God offers us while favoring this meaningless, selfish, temporal desires of the flesh that we have that will lead to destruction. Yet, through Jesus, God offers repentance for our sins, a chance to turn back and be free from the sins that are dragging us down to hell and receive forgiveness, free from that haunting feeling that we have stooped to the weakness of the flesh and free of this gnawing uneasiness and tension of being enmity, having enmity with God, right? Not being on good terms with Him. And what a wonderful thing it is, friends, to be free from sin. And we can have it. And Jesus is able to offer this forgiveness because He defeated sin our greatest enemy, by absorbing 
sin's greatest weapon upon itself. Death and separation from God was the penalty, the curse that we brought upon ourselves for our sins. But when Jesus died, having been perfectly obedient, he took responsibility for our sins and he was raised from the dead to offer us the gift of his life to cover for our failures. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he who knew no sin carried our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And how we are ultimately able to live in this righteousness is through the Holy Spirit, just been given by God to us to vindicate his power. Just the third thing that the apostles mention as a reason why they will not stop preaching the gospel. Massively important theological statement here made by the apostle. That the Holy Spirit that was given to us is actually who testifies to us the identity of Jesus, the Messiah. Meaning that the reason why we believe in Jesus, the reason why we have faith in him, was not because we looked around and found God. It's not as if through our rational processes, we somehow deduce that Jesus is Lord, but it is because God himself, by his Holy Spirit, intervenes such that we who were once blind can now see. It is because God first convicted us by the Spirit. We were able to accept that harsh and painful reality that we are broken and flawed sinners, deserving of judgment and helpless without Him. It is first because God has drawn us by the Holy Spirit where we'll be able, where we're able to see the gospel and be compelled by its beauty. It was only by the leading of the Spirit that we get this vulnerability, the strength to be vulnerable and confess to Him our sins and depend on Him and beg Him to change us. Every step of our coming to Jesus was led by the Spirit. And this fact should assure us that whatever further steps we need to make, we will take with Him. For the Lord will finish the good work that He started in us. Amen. Therefore, upon these three things, the apostles were able to stand firm in their calling and commitment to God. Knowing the preeminent authority of Christ, made relenting to the authority of the Sadducees foolish because it would mean they would be rebelling against the ultimate authority. So it gave them a healthy fear of the Lord necessary for obedience. Knowing the surpassing value of the gift of forgiveness Christ offers made stopping to preach the gospels foolish and selfish because they would be robbing people of the opportunity to receive eternal life that they would be leaving behind the most valuable thing for some temporary safety. So it gave them the appropriate gratitude that is needed to obey. And knowing that the Holy Spirit, not their power and their efforts, are, is the one who is leading those who obey God to faith, gave them assurance that no matter what, their efforts will not be in vain. You can internalize these truths, friends, and stand upon them. We will find the courage to obey like the apostles did though it was costly, and it will involve suffering. Standing upon these truths is the only way we can stand firm as the gospel weeds out these unredeemed uh, remnants of the worldview that begins to crumble under the glorious weight of the gospel. And as we grow in our knowledge of God and participate in His eternal life, these truths 
will always be the foundation. Hence, in light of these truths, we are left with a choice, brothers and sisters. Fear the Lord and serve Him with sincerity or faithfulness. Put away those things that are incompatible with what God has done for you and who you are in God. Repent and serve the Lord. But if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for Cowden City Church, we will serve the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are continually humbled, Lord, by your preservation of us, your providence that keeps us going day by day, week by week, year by year, Lord. We thank you that you have sent to us your spirit that testifies to your truth. But we confess, Lord, that we often resist this change that you are leading us to. We often take for granted the eternal life that is possible when we leave our sin and come running to you to relate to you and know you even more deeply. We settle, Lord, for something much less. Father, show us the surpassing greatness of your glory. May we be floored by you, Lord, and may we see truly that the things of this earth are dim relative to you. Show us your glory, Lord, and give us boldness and call us to serve you in whatever way you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.